Welcome to the Real Life Roundtable podcast, conversations about culture, Christianity, church, and community, and where all those intersect as we explore real life with one another. The Real Life Roundtable is a production of Real Life Community Church in Portage, Indiana. For more information, follow us at RLCC Life on Facebook or visit reallifecc.org. Hey, welcome to the podcast today. This is uh, Rich Doring, and I'm here with Ben Chattel and a very, very Hello. special guest that we will introduce shortly. But uh, we're jumping in here, coming out of a weekend, heading into fall, and I'm going to open with the fact that I have a house that has zero children in it. You are an empty nester. So even like this weekend was probably the first weekend I think we woke up and we were like, man, we like don't have to run anywhere. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to prepare food for anybody else. We don't have to run anywhere. Any, I mean, we we've like run people everywhere for ever now. And we're at like this season of life, which is like completely the opposite of you. Yeah. Yeah. Quite the Monday. So child number one had to go to the dentist. So child number two had to come into the office with me. Then child number one found out she had to have a tooth pulled. So then I had to take child number two with me to go with child number one because she wouldn't get the ch- the tooth pulled without dad. And then in the midst of that, child number two decided to have some kind of an allergy attack. So then I went from going home to running him to the urgent care because I thought he was choking to death. So me and Hillary were just running around with both kids, hoping that they both survived. And then we both drowned our sorrows in a large hurricane of ice cream goodness because yesterday was evidence that it does take a village of people. And thankfully we have insurance. Thankfully we had two vehicles to get us to and from. Like there was just a lot of stuff that we're thankful for that we had because it was literally just like buckle up. Nice. So she, so she had a tooth. I didn't know that she had a tooth pulled. Yeah. Yeah. And it took like a month and a half to get an actual appointment in to have it checked out. So she had a baby tooth and she has what's called shark teeth. So she's a Mm, baby shark. mm -hmm. Nice. Um, She'll she'll live that out, I think. Yeah. Now, I mean, there's a total trade-off. I don't have anybody to mow my lawn anymore. At some point, I'm going to have to shovel snow. At some point, I'm going to have to get up and get the remote myself. I mean, this just all kinds of things. So there's a trade-off, but no, I'm just kidding. Well, all right. So we're talking about kids. Our special guest is Miss Amy Jo Fox, and uh, we are thrilled to have her with us. She's from Hands of Hope, which is an organization that uh, that helps with foster care. And uh, Amy, I met you uh, over 10 years ago, you and your husband, Brent, Mm-hmm. and uh, and your your family at the time and ever since the beginning uh, of our relationship I've always known that you've had a passion for foster care I think even in our first conversation you talked about you knew at some point that foster care would be a part of your future and I don't know if it you envisioned it being the way it is now 10 11 12 years later but we've asked you specifically because um, as a part of our church here in the region, as a part of what we desire to do, loving God, loving people, serving the world, our desire is to make sure that we make a transformative impact uh, in the world that we live in. And so we're, we're intentionally calling different people and asking different people to be on the podcast just to share with us their experiences. So I guess, uh, first of all, 
welcome. And then second of all, I want you just to kind of share with us a little bit um, of how you entered into foster care and how that has impacted your family. What, what put that burden in your heart? Yeah. Thank you for having me. First of all, um, it's good to, good to be here and good to talk with both of you. What the listeners may not know is that we've been connected for a while now, even though we haven't lived uh, together in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. We at one time all lived in Racine, Wisconsin together. And um, so just happy to be be connected to you guys on the podcast and um, love what you're doing here in Indiana now with me. Yeah, in the same we state all ended again. up in Indiana, so, the crossroads yeah. of America. Everybody yeah. ends up in Indiana. <laughs> so um, yes, I am in the Indianapolis area, um, work for a nonprofit called Hands of Hope. Um, I'll tell a little bit more about that in a little while, but um, I think probably... Well, I remember the very, very first time that foster care was kind of um, placed on my heart. Uh, I remember sitting in my living room in Ohio, Marion, Ohio at the time, and I had a two-year-old and a six-week-old baby. Um, so my girls, both born to me biologically, uh, I was holding my six-week-old and she uh, somehow through the process of birthing my second child, she just, uh, kind of brought to light the, um, the heartbeat that I had for, uh, children that needed safe and loving homes. And so, um, I remember talking to Brent, my husband about that. And like I said, at the time we had a two-year-old and a six-week-old and, um, <laughs> we're like, this is crazy. Why would we be talking about stepping into foster care um, when we have a newborn? And uh, we didn't live near family at the time. And so um, I think about, I don't know, six months later or so, we started the process of becoming licensed to foster and we got too scared. Uh, and so we stepped out of the process and that was in 2007. Um, in January of 2017, so 10 years later, we're sitting in our living room in Indiana, and we kind of looked at each other and said, um, we've been having this conversation, and we actually have been um, starting the process and stepping out of the process at that point, we had done so three times, uh, for a whole decade of our life. And so we're either going to move forward and do this afraid, or we're never going to talk about it again. Mm. Um, and so the next day I made the call and we, um, were licensed to foster then in May of 2017. And that began our journey. Um, and so and it then it was just like easy at that point. It was just, like, yeah, oh, that yeah. Was, once you jumped yeah. over that hurdle, no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah, we, so the, the really amazing part about that is, um, looking back, you know, spending 10 years knowing, feeling like we're supposed to be stepping into something, knowing that, um, we had that conviction to do that and we would be held accountable for that. But, um, really just not being willing to say yes and like mm -hmm. go all in. Um, I think I have such a, um, 
empathy for people that feel like they're supposed to be doing something, but they're not sure they can. Um, and so I understand that like we spent 10 years, that's a long time to, um, to, you know, kind of wait around and even begin the process and fill out paperwork and then step out. So, uh, that's a little bit about how long it took us to get here. Um, so our, in, in July, then two months after we were licensed, um, we got a call for our son and, um, picked him up one late summer night in at the Marion County DCS office. And, um, about a week later, we got a call that there was a baby brother in the NICU that, um, we didn't know about. And so, um, we brought him home a few weeks after that and they never left. They're still here. They're part of our family. We adopted them in 2019. So, Mm. so when you jumped into that, uh, really quick, when you knew you were picking those boys up, did you have in your mind, this might turn into an adoption or, cause I mean, you're, you're their parents. I mean, you're, they're fully adopted at this point and uh, they're your sons. Did you go into that thinking, Hey, this might turn into an adoption or did you kind of go into it with an understanding of these, these will be our sons for a season and, uh, and then they'll, they'll go on to the next season. Yeah. So, um, you know, interestingly, I want to back up just a little bit to answer that question because, sure. um, I want to be able to paint the the whole picture with our mindset and kind of where we were in our hearts at that time. So when we called that, like, like I mentioned in January of 2017, we, um, we knew that foster care was really hard. And mm-hmm. so we kind of said, let's try to like go in a different way. And let's try to um, explore this option of bringing a legally free child into our home. So Mm. um, what the listener may not know, and maybe you do, but just really quickly, there's children that are in the foster care system that their plan is to reunify with their biological parents. Um, And so, you know, through that, they're kind of um, in this in-between, but they're, they're, their plan is to be reunified and they are not eligible for adoption. Once a child, once DCS deems that it's no longer, um, uh, no longer safe for the child to return home, the parental rights are terminated. There Mm. are children in the system that are sitting now that are, that are, uh, their parents, parental rights have been terminated and they are hundred percent eligible for adoption. Wow. Those are called legally free children. Um, when we started the process, we planned on, um, taking a legally free child into our home and kind of moving forward with adoption. So we, we had a heart for, you know, a child that is in foster care, but our hearts were, um, guarded and rightfully so we didn't want to, um, necessarily have a revolving door. Sure. And at the time, of course, you know, remember we, we have two biological daughters as well. And so we were concerned about the effects that it would have on them and all that. So we, we started the process by, um, really seeking out a legally free child to bring home to, with plans to adopt. When we started the classes, then 
um, God changed our, our heart entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is when we move towards, um, you know what we have children in our County and County surrounding us that need a home now that are sleeping on the office floor of this DCS, you know, mm-hmm. building. And so let's just go all in and whatever it is, it is. So we, we had a heart to adopt someday, but we also knew that um, we had to fully be on board with reunification and whatever children or child God brought to us, them leaving and going home. Sure. Which is hard. That's hard. And then briefly, so the share the age difference between your girls and your boys, and then also share just a little bit about the um, third foster child that came into your life that Mm -hmm. ended up being on the total different end of the the age range that you were expecting. Yeah. So, um, so our girls are, they were born 22 months apart. So they're now uh, 17 and 15. And then our boys, um, they were born nine months and 10 days apart um, to the same mother. And so um, for a few months out of the year, they're the same age, but right now they're five and six. Um, so we started all over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we would be nearing the empty nest uh, phase mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> like Rich and Shelly, but um, nope, we started all over and um, that was a, a big adjustment for us. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it's so fun to, it's fun, you know, to have the girls born closely together. Now they're very close and like your boys, you know, they're kind of in the same mm-hmm. season of, of life, Rich. And, um, and then now to have the boys and, you know, they're, both doing the same things and they're in kindergarten and preschool right now. And so, uh, the starting over, if we had to do it, it's a fun way to do it. Cause they have each other, you know, and we're right, kind of, right. so, and then, um, about four months after the boys were adopted in 2019, um, we welcomed a 17 year old who came to us 36 weeks pregnant at the time. And she wow. had her baby with us. Uh, so she came to us the week of Thanksgiving and had the baby the week of Christmas. And then she aged out of the foster care system, uh, then in July. So she was with us for a little less than a year. Um, and then she transitioned into independent living through what is called collaborative care, which is for, um, older youth that age out of the system. And, um, she is doing well. I'm so proud of her. Uh, we still are very much a part of each other's lives. We were just texting last night. I love you. I miss you. I'm so proud of you. Um, cool. yeah, she's so you awesome. got to be parents to two sets of kids and now you're almost kind of like a yeah. grandparent. Like you just can't <laughs> not have kids. I, in your yeah, life. Amy Fox is a grandma. How, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's wow. You beat wow. everybody. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I, yeah, I guess so. I guess I am technically a grandma. We, I am called well, if Mimi. You don't talk, if you don't go, call yourself that, we will. We no, will call you. We, no, we do. We do. We just say Mimi. So it's <laughs> gotcha. Mimi seems a little gentler. You know, I'm it like does. not Maybe ready. A little yes. Bit. <laughs> so yeah, but Kelsey is cool. amazing, and um, it's been really awesome for our eyes to be opened through her world mm-hmm. to um, the need for for mentors and parents and homes for these older youth that spend years and years and years in the system and oftentimes uh, and don't had, have correct 
I mean, she'd been in the Mm -hmm. system a long Mm -hmm. time, a long time and had been, um, really not even been in a home in a family. And so, um, that's a whole nother topic that we could talk about. Right. And that gives you a more well-rounded perspective, fostering an older child that's actually able to articulate to you the difficulties. To, of, yes. So now you, you're able to see firsthand through your relationship with her of what she has gone through and how foster, how foster homes can go wrong, I guess, and how the foster system can fail kids at any age. But you're able to hear that firsthand from somebody that had aged out of the foster system without mm-hmm. being adopted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She, um, her story is unbelievable. And, and Brent and I have, have told her many times she has more, um, life experiences and more trauma and hardship in her, you know, at that time, 17, 18 years than we did in our 40 (laughs) and, um, probably ever will. And, uh, yet, um, she is determined and is doing a, a great job at um, breaking the cycle for her for her son, and still has a long, hard road ahead of her. But um, it's been really amazing to see how all the odds, like knowing all the odds that were stacked against her, and the statistics mm-hmm. and the data that would uh, tell us otherwise, how well she's doing and how determined she is. And that's, um, I believe it's not, it's not us. It wasn't, it wasn't me or, you know, my husband or our, our kids, or it was just that she needed a family. Like she needed a home. She needed to be out of the, um, residential facilities that she had been in and out of for years. She needed to be out of the institution. She needed to be out of the group homes and be in a, in a, a loving home with a family, Mm. uh, to, to thrive. And she is. And so, and as much then on the contrary, how much she changed and impacted our life. Like it's not about like she's done just as much, if not more in our hearts and our life than we did in hers. So it's really, really amazing to see that. Well, that goes to kind of what these conversations are about and the reason why we're interviewing people. So the, the whole idea behind having these interviews with people is to, to learn from, to relate to, and then to love people in different people groups, people from different perspectives, people from different walks of life. And I, I don't, I, I wish there was a better way to put that because I don't want to create divisions between people, but ultimately I'm not creating those divisions. They're already there. So we're just kind of highlighting that there are a lot of different people that are from different walks of life and different seasons of life. So they have different perspectives. So that's why your story matters. And that's why the stories that your boys carry matter and the stories of your daughter matter. It, you're able to give us a perspective to learn about children in the foster system, to learn about the difficulties of being foster parents. So let's start there at the first point. Let's start at learn from what, what are maybe some false narratives that are around the the foster system? What are some hidden truths about the foster system that maybe we don't know that you didn't realize until you were actually a foster parent one, but then also now working with foster families as a part of Hands of Hope, like what what can we learn about the families in the foster system and the system itself that would be helpful for the church? Yeah, um, I think of two. I think of two things. Um, 
aside from, so in thinking of the system or the family, so aside from the chill, the children, Mm -hmm. um, so number one is, um, that it is like, it is the, these children, this system, this, uh, problem is all of ours. This is not just for people that feel like they're supposed to be foster parents, or Mm. this is not just for, you know, someone that feels called to be a case manager. And so they go into social work. This is your problem and my problem and every single person's problem. And we all have a part to play. There is something for every single person to do. Um, whether you own a business and you are a mechanic or you have a restaurant or you cut hair or, you know, you're a teacher and you can mentor or you have a, you know, you can provide childcare or you can cook a meal or order pizza. Like literally everyone has a part to play. And I think before the reason it seemed so scary and it took us 10 years to say yes is because it seemed like, you know, you needed to have like this special, extra strong, like resilient heart to do the work. And that's just not true. Like we're, we're regular people with regular problems and regular families and we just have said, yes, that's literally the only difference between a foster parent and, you know, your neighbor is it's not, it doesn't take extra special people with extra special resilience or strength. They're regular people. Um, and so I think it's so important for everyone to understand that there is a role to play and it is all of our problems. These children are it's all of our children. And so that was the most, that was something I didn't even realize until after we were in it, like probably six months to a year that like, oh, okay. It's not like we became extra strong. It's not like I feel like I, you know, am more brave. Like, no, it's, I'm actually the same exact person and I have the same exact heart and, and, feel the same weakness. I just have said yes. Um, so part of what I get to do in my everyday job, you know, my everyday work life now is really to, um, encourage and, and equip, um, and coach, um, leaders and, and church staff to understand that, that, Mm -hmm. um, we all have a part to play and the church capital C is, is the answer. Like we are, the church is the solution to the crisis. Right. You you had told me in a previous conversation that statistically, if every church in some way, shape or form partnered with foster families and invested in the foster mm-hmm. system, there wouldn't be a need, essentially. I mean, there would be a need, but all of the needs would be met by the church. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Um, so what we know is, uh, it, well, in Indiana, the last time I pulled the numbers, which this, I didn't, I haven't pulled them this year. So this could be different, but what I knew to be true was that there was, um, 
6,000, a little over 6,000, about 6,200 at the time, licensed foster homes in the state of Indiana. Hmm. And there were over 9,000 registered churches or, or bodies of faith in the state of Indiana. So that tells me that if every single church just wrapped around one family and Sometimes, you know, foster families have one foster, one child in their care. Sometimes they mm-hmm. have four. But right. if every church just wrapped around one family, then every single family would have more than enough support and every single child would have more than than what they need. And so um, from a really practical level, that seems really simple to me. Um, and what we know to be true nationally um, is that 50% of families that step into foster care will quit and relinquish their license after the first year. Wow. Because they don't Uh, have that support system. mm -hmm, Exactly. When, when we ask them why the number one reason is they feel like they did not have the support that they needed. And what kind of support specifically do you think that they needed in those moments? Yeah. So they need uh, what we call, you know, practical and emotional and spiritual support. So, Mm -hmm. um, at hands of hope, we actually, um, have a nationwide model that's called care communities and it wraps, it's a, it's a team of about six to eight volunteers that commit to wrapping around a family for 12 months. And that wraparound support looks like simple things like help with one meal a week, Um, and we, we often say the meal is not about the food. The meal is the gift of time. So it's kind of taking Mm -hmm. that burden of time and having, you know, for the parents and then giving that time back that they can just not have to think about dinner. And they just get to sit down at the table with their kids and enjoy a meal that someone else has prepared for them. Um, they can also be helping by, um, raking leaves in the fall or, uh, we have some family helpers that, um, you know, that couple women that I think of in particular that I know of that are serving as family helpers and they're retired and they enjoy doing laundry. And so uh, every other week they'll tell, you know, mom, set the laundry on the front porch. I'm going to come by and pick up the laundry, the kids laundry, wow. do all the kids laundry, bring it back folded and ready to be put away. Mm-hmm. And Simple for that, you're, ta- you're talking hours that you have to be at home yeah. doing the laundry, then sure. folding the laundry. I mean, that it's such yeah. a time saver. So, yep, it is. Yeah. Um, we have one church that has care communities at their church and they have what they call a handyman team. And so there's a group of people that when there's, you know, maybe a light fixture is out or something's, you know, a door's not shutting properly or whatever, they will go over and just kind of help to alleviate those like handyman uh, issues at home so that again, parents don't have to think about that. And it's, it's literally just about helping to bear the burden, like helping to ease the stress of everyday life, um, for these families. And then there's also a, a role specifically on the care community that's called a child mentor. And those are volunteers that really have a heart to spend one-on-one time with these children. And that could be for the children that are in foster care or like for we, when we had a care community, uh, we had a child mentor that her heart really beat for our girls because she knew Hmm. that, you know, 
they had mom and dad to themselves for all Mm -hmm. those years. And now their world was rocked and turned upside down when these two babies came to stay with us. And so she would spend time with them every month, take them out to ice cream or take them to a movie or just hang out, go to the park. Um, and she really poured into them and was kind of just a, a safe place for them. And we're forever grateful for her for that. Um, and so what we see is when these families are surrounded by a care community, that 50% number that I shared earlier drops to less than 10%. Wow. Wow. So uh, which if you're talking even just the thousands of foster families in Indiana, now you expand that to all 50 states. You're talking mm-hmm. about thousands of children that still can mm-hmm. stay in the same home right. under mm-hmm. one roof. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what happens when children can stay in the same place? Like when children are not disrupted because parents are sustained and their marriages are healthier and the, you know their, their life is less stressful. When children can stay and there's, there's not multiple disruptions and they're not moved from place to place to place, their outcomes are substantially better. When we're looking at, you know, even in Kelsey's situation, all the number of moves that she took and the number of times she ran, she was on the run for months at a time. Her outcome, her, like I mentioned earlier, her outcomes, her, like the statistics that are stacked against her are, they're mind blowing. You can't even- The kids in the system are not set up to succeed. No. They're not, and they need a, they need sustainability, and we that's where we come in. That's how okay. the church steps up. We help to sustain these homes and these marriages and these families so that the kids can stay until they, you know, are granted permanency one way or the other. Right. Well, that leads. So in these conversations, usually we have a devil's advocate. So I'll be that one right now. I yeah, it was me last guy every once so. in a while. So. <laughs> So from a pastoral perspective and a church nuts and bolts perspective, all that kind of different stuff, you look at the things that have to be talked about and dealt with on a week to week basis and just the struggle it is to get people to do just some of the basic stuff that the church is supposed mm-hmm. to be doing. So family advocacy ministry. So I know Hands of Hope, you know, equips mm-hmm. churches, create much needed support for vulnerable children. There's language here and and I guess what I'm 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 getting at is, um, talk to us about the child welfare crisis because there has to be obviously this moment where people in a church understand okay yeah everybody can do something and we're we're those everybody we need to be doing something and what talk to us about the child welfare crisis give us a picture just kind of based on what your experience is and based on what you see and what you're you're a part of. What is the crisis right now when it comes to child welfare and why, yeah, what does that crisis look like? Yeah. Um, and why should the church care? Mm-hmm. I guess is, I mean, it's, I'm, obviously I care, but you know, why, why should the church <laughs> care? You know, I'm going right. to, I'm going to sure. clip I'm, that and there's just going to be a clip of Rich saying, why should the church <laughs> care? And I'm just going to layer, I'm just going to layer that over every one of these conversations. Why? Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> You get what Um, I'm saying. I do. So, um, okay. Well, the, how I want to answer your question from, uh, someone who loves and follows Jesus is Mm -hmm. the, 
the church should care sure because jesus went first right like yep. the church should care because the word of god tells us to care yep uh f- furthermore we um we have a responsibility um as jesus followers to care for vulnerable children mm-hmm. um that responsibility is i i understand uh that it looks different for every single person mm-hmm. but the crisis is that we we as a church capital c mm-hmm. have become um complacent and mm-hmm. kind of what i spoke about earlier like um i care about it it's sad you know oh it's sad when i see the commercial on the tv it's sad when i hear about you know the child that's been waiting in the system for 5 years for mm-hmm. a family to say we'll love you you can be a part of our family it's sad for fill in the blank what xyz but mm-hmm. but our human nature is to think but there's really nothing I can do about that. Like I have enough on my plate or I I'm already trying to balance all this. We're all, everyone is in that same boat. We're all so busy. Um, And that is why there is a crisis because we, we think it's somebody else's problem. Mm. And the crisis then becomes, there's too many children in the system. Indiana is actually moving we have made uh, we have made a abundant um progress uh yes it since our director stigan came in office in 2018 things have been moving um in such a, a positive way with the number of children that we have in the system um but there's still so much to be done mm-hmm. uh what we what we find often is the number. So right now we have, um, I just looked earlier, it's a little over 12,000 children in Indiana in the foster care system. That can be either children that are still in, in home with their biological family. So they have not left their home. They have not been removed, but the department of child services is still involved and they're kind of trying to work with the family, um, to do what needs to be done to to be able to keep the children there. That could be children that are placed in a traditional foster home. So like my boys were, Mm -hmm. um, or that could be children that are placed in kinship care. So, um, that kinship care is when, um, anyone who kind of is, was previously connected to that child. So a teacher, a coach, maybe a neighbor, maybe an aunt or an uncle, a grandparent, those children have been removed and they're actually able to go stay with that person that they already have that connection to, uh, which is wonderful. Um, right. So it can look different ways, but all, all together, there are over 12,000 children in Indiana right now in the system. Um, what we find many times is those children that have been removed from their home in kinship or traditional foster care they've been removed due to what we call poverty neglect. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that is simply that um, there is a gap of what the parents are financially 
um, and practically able to provide that their kids need. So the kids, you know, maybe there's not a refrigerator in the home. Maybe the kids don't have beds to sleep on. Um, maybe they're, you know, $700 behind on their electric bill. And so they haven't had any electricity for a few months or whatever that is. Um, it's this idea that if the, if the parents were able to provide what they needed, um, there's no safety concern otherwise. And there's certainly no abuse, um, happening or, you know, drug abuse or anything like that, that would lead to neglect. It's simply because of their poverty and their inability to, uh, provide for their children and children are being removed from home, from their home for that. And Mm. that is gut-wrenching. And so what we have found, um, through, uh, again, a nationwide, um, um, tool called care portal is that we can actually the church can actually step in and be notified when those sorts of scenarios come across um, from a DCS assessment worker. When you know someone calls the hotline or DCS is made aware of a situation and they go out to assess and they see that this family literally only needs, you know, two beds and to be caught up on their their bills or mm. their electric bill or whatever the church can actually help meet that need. And those children get to stay home and their family is preserved. Um, and so crisis, when you ask like, what, what is the crisis? I think the crisis is, uh, we are doing a better job, but can have to continue to do a better job at not removing children that should not be removed from their home, Mm. that they just need help meeting needs. I think it speaks to how the church responds to these things because it becomes so easy to react. We talked about this last week when we talked to Dexter about being reactionary. Once, mm-hmm. once the children are removed, once the children are in the foster system, it becomes so much easier for the church to react to those situations and say, like, this is a, this is a sign that things are just continuing to get so bad and things mm-hmm. are just so broken it, you complain about the the systemic issues not in a way that is redemptive and not a, and not in a way that is humanizing for these families. But then when you really look at it, like you highlighted, these are good parents. These aren't villains. These aren't people that are inherently broken, inherently incapable of loving children because of their circumstances, which could be partly their fault, could be partly the system's fault, could be a mixture of both. One way or another, they just don't have the ability to meet their own needs. But when we see scripturally and biblically, when there are people that their their needs aren't met, Jesus didn't instruct us to complain about it. He didn't instruct us to make a meme about it and make it go viral and say, this is why we need so-and-so politician. This is why we need, this is why we just need to like hold our breath until Jesus comes back. It was this, we need to care for people who are vulnerable so it humanizes people and it also shrinks the problem down so that we, it's not just this, we need a miracle for all of these children and all these families to be saved. And we need to just collectively pray. These are tangible steps that one family, whether a church decides to be a care portal or a care community can save one family from having to enter the foster system, but then also save one family 
and support them as they do foster children. And that's something that is the ratio is insane. I mean, if you have a church of two, 300 people like we do, to care for one family almost seems so small that it's silly. But at the same time, let's not worry about changing the whole world, but let's change the whole world of an individual, one family at a time and see the impact we, we can make. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you're, you're right. It seems, it seems so simple that it, you know, it's, it's kind of silly when you, when you think about it. And that's why, um, I love what, I love what I'm seeing across Indiana, across our state, um, is that the, that, you know, church leaders and, and different churches and different communities are becoming aware of how they can help. Cause the bottom line is, I think, you know, uh, a lot of us, even, uh, even us before we stepped in, you know, to foster care is like, well, you want to help and you would, you would help, but you don't know how to help, mm, you know, it's right. like, well, if I can't bring a child into my home, what am I supposed to do? Um, and so what we're seeing is just this, uh, this movement really of churches and communities across our state that are realizing that there is something very practical like care communities or care portal that we can do. And when we work together, the, you know, the impact is incredible. We often say at hands of hope, there are powerful possibilities when we work together. And that is literally what it is, is your church sees this need and, and maybe it's not care portal or care communities. Maybe it's a foster care closet, or maybe it's a support group, you Mm -hmm. know, like Maybe it's a small group. I don't know. But this idea that each church is able to identify the need in their community and each church has different um, uh, gifts and abilities and people that are, you know, that are um, best at focusing in different areas. And so as each church works together to realize like where the gaps are, this collective impact that is made um, in these communities is amazing. We're seeing it here in Indianapolis, we've seen it in Terre Haute. We're seeing it right now in Evansville and down in um, Vigo County. Um, and then now I'm, you know, hopeful and Northeast in Fort, the Fort Wayne area, we have several churches that have gotten on board there. And so, um, talk yeah, to us about you, Northwest Indiana. Do you have any presence here or what's, what's the situation here? Yeah. So we do have some presence. We have a couple churches, um, in Lake County, um, in Gary in particular that have come through, um, and joined our network just last year and, um, are working to try to get things up and going. And I think their focus, um, right now is care communities. Mm-hmm. Um, but even outside of the churches that may not have, um, committed to, or aren't sure yet, like, you know, where their fam, their family advocacy ministry focus will be. Um, we are, we're seeing a lot of connections with new churches that, and the need is so great there. Like, like, I mean, Lake County in and of itself, but also just in Northwest Indiana. Um, so we have a hand, a good handful of churches just within this last year that, um, have met together that are having, you know, these, um, meet and greets where they're, you know, a couple people from each church are coming and just talking about what are the needs? Where are you guys? What are you working on? How can we help? Here's what we're doing. Here's what's going well. Here's not what's not going well. 
Um, and so just this idea of kind of binding together and figuring out how can we best make this collective impact and change really the, you know, the ecosystem mm. of, of the system and where these families and children are. So. And that collective impact, like you said, I mean, just for your own experience, as an example, you had a child that had been going in and out of homes, running away. Yeah. You were able to have her in your life for only the last year of her childhood before she became an adult. But now how much her life has changed because of that, how much your life has changed because of that, how much her child's life is going to change the rip, the, Mm -hmm. The massive ripple effects mm -hmm. that can happen from something mm -hmm. that anybody, like you said, can do something for, whether that mm -hmm. is mowing the lawn, whether that is making a meal, whatever that is, we, we can't minimize the impact that each individual can make because that's, that's why God made us the way he's made us to be in relationship. And when you actually, cause that's what it is. This is a mm -hmm. relational ministry, like more than the meal, more than the clean laundry. It's, showing people that they're not alone. And that's yeah. the number one way you break people out of that poverty mindset. That's the number one way you break people out of the cycle of hurt and brokenness and trauma is showing them that they're not alone by being relational, by building that relationship and building a community around them. And that is the church. Hello. Like yeah. that's, that's what we're yeah. supposed to do. Yeah. When we went yeah. back to going back to the why, Amy, you put a book in my hand a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. which is kind of dangerous. So everyone can do something. Jason Johnson page. Have you read 50. it? Have you read some uh, of it? I've been reading through bunches of it. So okay. on page 50, um, it talks about front end motivation. Why would we do this? You know, and some of the materials from, from uh, hands of hope, you know, it, it talks about the fact that the child, the kid, the kid is our reason why. Mm -hmm. And on, on page 50, it says this, the gospel compels us to speak on behalf of and stand for the sake of those who cannot speak and stand for themselves. That's why we, why this is so important because that is exactly what God has done for us through Jesus. Uh, it's our why. And I think, you know, ultimately, you know, we all, uh, we've all been in church leadership, you know, for years at this point. And we know that it's hard to get people focused on specific things, but when you get really get, people to focus on the heart of Christ, the heart of Christ. I mean, who did he go spend time with? Um, you know, he, he spent time and advocated for those who didn't have a voice, who couldn't speak yeah. for themselves. And, you know, um, if there was a way, I know what's the best way if somebody's interested, I know we as a church are talking about what are some things that we might be able to do, but, mm -hmm. uh, does hands of hope have a, a website or should they go to the careportal.org? Yeah. So, um, I would say start starting with the hands of hope website, cause you can find, um, information about care portal there. You can find information about care communities, um, even other events that we have. Um, so that's hands of hope, in.org hands of hope, in.org. Um, that's a great place to start. And really also just learning. Um, we, you know, we mentioned you first mentioned, but then I did too, uh, this idea of fam family advocacy ministry, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a big umbrella of opportunity there. And so, um, while we think care communities and care portal are, um, two amazing tools and, and models and programs to have, there's, uh, endless possibilities, you know, with that. So you guys may figure out that it's, that you see another need, um, sure. for your space or your community. And that's, 
it's all needed. So right. everything is there on handsofhopein.org. Cool. Well, we'll yeah. put those links in the description and stuff. Could you talk to us really quick also about the Every Child Symposium? Is that something that you would recommend? Yes, I would highly recommend it. What is it um, specifically? I, yeah, it's a one-day um, event symposium that we have every spring um, here in the Indianapolis area. And it is amazing. Uh, an amazing resource for like foster parents, adoptive parents, hopeful foster or adoptive parents. But we've had teachers that have come, child welfare workers, like, you know, case managers or licensing workers. We have CASAs that come, um, even church leaders or, you know, children's ministers, uh, children's ministers. So the idea is um, to gather in one place and there's a, a couple like keynote sessions, but then also a lot of breakouts that you can kind of choose, uh, uh, your breakout sessions of what you would want to go learn more about. So I remember the very first year that I went to every child, I actually went to a breakout session, uh, cause my boys were a multiracial family. My boys are both black. And so I had no idea what to do with their hair. And so <laughs> I went to a breakout session and learned a little bit about how to do my boys' hair, uh, which is amazing. Like, yeah, who, it's a big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. Like, and so to have that place and that um, day where everyone gathers and you can, we have a lot of sessions, you know, on on ministry, of course, but then also even like trauma informed care or TBRI, if you've heard of that, trust based relational intervention, and you know how to best care for children that are coming from from hard places and have experienced trauma and what that looks like, um, in the classroom or, or at your church. Um, and so highly recommend it. Um, I'm there every year and we love it. It's a, an amazing event. Very cool. So Very you mentioned cool. a couple of things you mentioned trauma informed care, and then you also mentioned, um, being a multiracial family. What are some of the challenges trying to raise your boys and raise your family in church today? I get, cause mm. I mean, <laughs> most churches aren't prepared ethnic aren't prepared to speak into that or, or support mm -hmm. that. I mean, I, I mean, and I've been a yeah. part of some kids men stuff where it's no one feels prepared. So then mm -hmm. when you also throw in trauma, when you throw in multiracial families, when you throw in foster families, what, yeah. where is the church at and where can we be better? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. This is such a good uh, such a good question. I could spend literally the rest of the day talking about this alone. So, um, this is a tough place for the church. Okay. So there's, there's this, uh, misunderstanding, I think that, and I was there totally there, um, you know, five years ago that we just bring these children into our homes and into our family. And, and we just start loving them how we would. And then like, it that's better. it. Yeah. yeah. We love them and it gets better and we just love them like our kids and man, nothing could be further from the truth. It gets harder. It's harder for us this year than it was last year. Um, and that is a lot of times because of the way that trauma changes the brain. Um, it takes time for us to see the effects of that. And so some of the challenges that we're faced with right now with my five and six-year-old boys, uh, we could have never seen coming even a year ago, but certainly three, four years ago. Um, and so 
we have these families that have brought these children into their homes. And as a church, we come alongside them and love them. And we, you know, wrap around support all that, but then they come to church on Sunday morning and we're putting them in these environments where, you know, the majority of the other children in the class classes may be neurotypical and they can't function well. And they need, Mm -hmm. they need adults that are informed on, uh, how to best care for their traumatized brains. Mm -hmm. And cause it has changed their brain. Mm -hmm. Their, their brain is literally different. And so, um, what we have found and we're working really hard at hands of hope on, um, getting better at is we need to, um, have educational opportunities for, um, these volunteers, you know, children's ministry workers, youth workers, whomever, um, to learn just the basics of what is, what is trauma and how does it change the brain and how do we best meet them where they are and love them? Cause we can't say and do the same things that we say and do with our you know, biological neurotypical children in our home that we do with our boys. And so, um, we have a couple of settings each year that we help provide some of that training for, uh, church leaders or volunteers. And then also we partner with, um, our affiliate in the Atlanta, Georgia area is called promise six, eight, six, and they have some really amazing tools that are um, about to be released this fall for volunteers in ministry to help just learn the basics and know how to best interact with these kids. So I can definitely, um, help get you guys connected to that. If that's something you're interested in. And and that's, that's again, another example of proactively loving these families rather than reacting to maybe behavior of those Mm -hmm. kids, five, 10, 15 years down the road, when now we vilified them Mm -hmm. based on Mm -hmm. their neurotypical behavior. Mm -hmm or their non-neurotypical behavior that has led them to not fit a mold that we want to put them in. Right. I love what you said. I haven't got to listen to the, um, to, is it Dexter Dexter Harris? Yeah. I haven't got to listen. listen. I know I haven't got to yet. I've been in back-to-back meetings the last couple of days, but, um, something that you said about what you talked about with him reminded me of this idea that, um, that it's, you know, we don't like the church capital C tends to not, or historically has tended to not step in to this work. Right. But then when these children become teenagers and the teenagers become adults, and then, you know, they're sitting in the prison system or Mm -hmm. they're criminals or they're this or that it's like, then we're not, we complain about that then we don't have a solution we for that. We react instead of... We react. That was yeah. it. Reactionary. Yeah. And so we're reacting to the downstream issues right. that mm-hmm. make us unhappy and that, well, that are that annoying. That comes and, from our ignorance too. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't know other people's stories, you know? And, and to me, when as you're sharing a little bit, and, and this does come into an issue of proximity. I think there's probably just a lot of false assumptions about who ends up in a foster care system. And just oh, the thing sure. that you said earlier, yeah. you know, in, in the material you have, it talks about preventing kids from entering foster care. Okay. So my mind immediately goes to, all right, well, how do you prevent that must be some huge system systemic thing. Maybe preventing is giving a family a fridge, you know, or, 
helping that person be able to take care of their car instead of them using that money instead of buying food. And so I think there's an, I mean, I know ignorance is a strong word, but I'm ignorant sometimes. So I think ignorance from, because of a lack of proximity, a lack of entering into the narrative and the story of other people allows us then to look at a prison system, allows us to look at these end results that people find themselves in and we cast off blame, you know, and say, well, if they would have been raised differently, or if, you know, yep. if there would have been a father present, I've heard that thing so many <laughs> times, it makes me sick that, you know, it's a fatherhood issue. Okay. So that it's really easy to throw those things around. I get it, but it's a whole lot harder to jump in and be incarnational like Jesus did. Okay. Mm-hmm. And enter into people's drama. So um, I, yeah, that's me getting on a high horse here, but, um, you know, that, that speaks to that issue of where the church can step in and actually start engaging people's stories and start doing life with other people as much as we like to not throw that word around the doing life moniker, but it is, it's about entering Mm -hmm. into other people's narratives and other people's stories. Mm -hmm. It is. I have a friend who aged out of the system. He's become my friend over the last few years. We're in this, in this work, um, together. He aged out of the system in Pennsylvania. And so looking at his story, uh, and knowing his story and knowing like, you know, the, okay. So some of the statistics around youth that age out, like automatically 40% chance of becoming homeless, 50% Mm -hmm. chance of developing a substance abuse problem. Um, 60% chance of being convicted of a crime less than 3% chance of graduating from college. We know all of these things nationwide, you know, put them in a box. That's here's, here's who we're handing to society. But what makes the difference in his story? And then what I'm seeing in Kelsey's story and what Mm -hmm. I know to be true about other older youth that have aged out, how do those numbers change with one even just one person, one adult that will care for them upstream. So upstream for them, aging out youth being before they age out, right? right. Or yeah, as soon explain, as, explain as, soon the as upstream, you can. Downstream thing a yeah. little you were, bit. You so were this, almost completely downstream with Kelsey, right? I mean, she was exactly. almost out of the system we were, by the time we, yes. that happened. So explain <laughs> yes. this upstream downstream for people that don't know. Yeah. So, so upstream would be exactly what Rich said. Like maybe they just need us to help, you know, help them find a used refrigerator. They need help fixing their car so they can get to work, so they can keep a job, so they can provide for their children. So upstream is that trying to keep, trying to help meet the needs of these struggling at-risk families to keep their children from having to be removed and the cycle from repeating itself. Right. And so it literally boils down to things like what he mentioned, the car, that if you don't have a reliable car, you can't get to work. If you can't get to work, you can't keep a job, you know, like this. So this idea of going upstream, instead of us being so frustrated with and and annoyed and complaining Mm -hmm. about what we see all the way downstream why aren't we going upstream to figure out what the problem right. is in the first place and helping to fix the problem? So essentially what you're saying is it's so like upstream, downstream. So instead of the church being at the bottom of this stream and going, why are there so many bodies in the mm-hmm. stream? Why are there so mm-hmm. many 
why are the problems stacking up down here instead of taking the journey to go upstream and see, okay, well, why is the bridge broken or why is there mm-hmm. not a path across yep. this river? It's that's, we're just, we're complaining about exactly the results. We're, right. That's exactly it. Yep. Yeah. And that's what I love about care portal is that is, you know, such a great tool to meet them upstream. And then think, I mean, we have seen, we, there's a story of a couple here in Indiana that needed a couch. They were working so hard to actually reunify with their children. They needed a couch and some other living room furniture. We have an area church that helped meet that need, took the couch over, talked with the couple, prayed with them because they were willing to allow them to pray, kept in touch. This couple then starts attending the church, gets saved, comes into relationship with Jesus, want they want to be baptized they're baptized now they're in a small group and being discipled Hmm. because this church and these point people met this need for some living room furniture so they could have a place for their kids to set when their kids were unified with them Hmm. and now their entire life has changed that's so frustrating because it's it's a couch (laughs) it is it's a couch like they they had the potential of becoming a villain or a failure as a parent because they didn't have a couch we're not talking about luxuries we're talking about a couch Mm -hmm. yeah they could have been another family at the bottom of that river because of a couch yeah we we call that story at, at yeah our staff team we said the couch that led to jesus like it's literally that simple it's that's cool and that's the gospel it is it is the gospel lived out yeah we talked about it last week with dexter the gospel is more than just something we accept for ourselves it's something we live Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. that's the gospel lived out it's pretty Mm -hmm. amazing can i just say this i'm going to brag on you and brent so um you and brent to me embody the thing that i appreciate most about you guys is and I know you said it took a while, 10 years for you to jump into foster care, but when you guys do jump in, here's what I know about you guys. Like there's like no holds barred. It's like, <laughs> it's like we're in and everybody knows it. Yeah, and here the, we go. The throttles man. on. So I appreciate that about you guys. Um, you. And, and I would even say, you know, there's, there's an envious part of me that wishes I was a little bit more like that, uh, who jumps in with both feet entire bodies, entire family, everything. And just says, this is who we are. And I, you are an empty nester. So be careful. I know. I know <laughs> yeah. And I live in a giant house that, yeah, with a bunch of empty there's bedrooms, a lot so. of couches in that house. I know. I know. Don't think the thought hasn't crossed my mind. So, um, yes, but well, uh, I appreciate yeah. that. No, Rich. you guys are great. And I'm proud of you uh, for whatever Thank that you. matters, but um, Thank you. no, you guys really embody this. And I, I appreciate the model that you guys set for others too. Thank you. And it's I, come at a cost. And I, I want, I want people has. to realize that it has, has come at a personal cost for you guys, even trying mm-hmm. to marry your personal convictions and the personal things you want to do as ministers of Jesus, sometimes it butts head butts heads with the church mm-hmm. and you've experienced yes. downfalls with that. You've experienced sacrifice. You've experienced hurt feelings and trauma just because you're trying to be Jesus to these families and yep. that, mm-hmm. and you guys have stuck through it. I know it's not easy. And we're talking about it as if you've conquered the mountain, like it's, you're still climbing the mountain, but we recognize and appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you. I, uh, I really appreciate that. And I, um, you know, we came up to visit a couple of weeks ago and, um, so good. So good. I, we got in the car and I told Brent so good to be, first of all, 
to feel as if we were just still like sitting in Wisconsin, like no time had passed, Mm. but yet all this time and all this pain has passed. And it felt like the safest place. I, this is literally what I said to him. It felt like the safest place we felt we've been in 14 months since all this happened. And it Mm. it was. And so we just really appreciate that. It makes me emotional thinking about it. Uh, We had such a good time being with you, with the four of you. When you Um, texted, when you texted me that you were so glad to be with somebody that's safe. I was also emotional because I was just like, ministry sometimes is hard and the moves and the sacrifices, but to hear somebody say, thanks for being a safe place. It was like, that's what it's all about. Yeah. But I know Brent looked at me and he's like, yeah, that's exactly like you said it, you hit the nail on the head and it, it was so good. But then also, uh, I mean, I don't even know, like, not that I ever would ever would have thought that we wouldn't be here and that you guys wouldn't be here, but like the conversations that we had about, you know, around the racial justice and and awareness piece and all of that. Like, I was just Mm -hmm. like, man, I'm so, I, I get so, I get so proud of my friends who are there with us that don't have to be like, you don't have a, you don't have a multiracial family. You don't have to, you don't, you don't have to be there, but you are, and you are like all there with us. And that means so much. And I, I, yeah, I'm so grateful and so proud of you for being there. And, um, again, I don't, I hate to even say that cause I don't want it to sound like I would expect less, but it's just like, wow, these people, I and mean, we have a couple other friends that live in Franklin that it's like, for what, but they've just, their eyes have been opened and now they're like, they're never looking back. And, and mm-hmm. so I just appreciate that. Cause we need you. Yeah. Well, I think it's natural. So. I think we all tend to feel alone sometimes in the things we're going through. And it's always kind of refreshing to know that we're not. So, yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Um, I just want to say one more thing. One of the things that, uh, that kept us for 10 long years from saying yes, is the concern that we had about how it would change our family and the effect that it would have on our kids. And, um, I, I'm so sad that we waited that long because the effects that I was worried about for my daughters, I've actually seen the complete opposite in their life. Mm-hmm. They see people that they never would have seen. They know things and people that they never would have known. They have experienced things to give them um, a level of em- empathy and compassion that I never could have dreamed of having as a 15 and 17 year old girl. Yeah, they're they're trailblazers. And so I am so I I I just feel so compelled to share that today that if there's someone listening that they think we just you know what about we just couldn't you know this or that our kids our home our jobs our family I get it but I challenge you to just say yes, because the, the implications of how this has played out for my biological daughters and how much it has changed their life has been an absolute gift. One of the best gifts of this entire process. And that is what I was most afraid of. And so for whatever it's worth, I just felt like I needed to share that because that's where we spent 10 years. And what were we afraid of? They are, they have become 
all who they are created to be through the process of foster care in their home. So very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, man, this has been awesome. We've been going for a while here. We could probably keep going, but uh, we probably ought to wrap it up. Ben, is there anything else you want to add? No, just thank you again. I mean, this has been really, I know that we've already talked a couple of times preliminarily just to kind of cover the ground, but this has been really helpful. I know that in the next couple of weeks to come, we're going to talk to somebody who um, works for an organization that does specifically work with neurodivergent children, um, works with kids in the autism spectrum, um, has also gone through some mental health journeys. So we're going to be able to talk to him and speak more into that. We're going to talk to somebody from the school system perspective, uh, somebody that's on a school board, somebody that's worked in schools in Northwest Indiana that can give us a perspective on a lot of these things, a lot of these downstream issues and and how Mm -hmm. the church can be upstream. But this, I think, is really helpful to set the table for those conversations and has just been really, on its own, has been a valuable valuable conversation and you've you've spelled out how simple but how impactful mm-hmm. the church can be if we just say yes to one family and then see see where god takes us from there so thank you so much yep yeah thank you so much for having me all right well we're gonna sign off thanks again amy and uh thank we you. will catch everybody else on the flip side see ya the real life roundtable is a production of real life community church in portage indiana For more information, follow us at RLCC Life on Facebook or visit reallifecc.org.